Last week, we launched into a series called Friendship Matters, where for the first week, we kind of camped out on this idea of how much friendship actually matters. Uh, Mike walked us through not just all that the Bible has to say about the importance of friendships, but actually spent some time uh, just kind of focusing on all of the practical health benefits of having good friends, all of the you know, stress-related dynamics and the life expectancy issues, especially looking at it from the other side when you consider the struggles that people have with loneliness. And he helped us to appreciate what the Bible means when early on in those first chapters of the book of Genesis, it says that it's not good for people to be alone. We learn the importance of friendship and that for every one of us, no matter how we're wired, friendship matters. So the obvious next move then is to say if friendship matters, you know, how do we experience them to a greater degree? And I'm sure that's relevant for many of us. At least the statistics would tell us that that's the case. A 2013 survey by StatsCan revealed that 86% of Canadians would say that it takes five or more close friends to live a satisfying life. You know, that's kind of the threshold minimum. Five or more good or close friends. The problem is, in that same survey, 48% of Canadians claimed to have less than five close friends or less than five people in their lives that they would categorize that way. So statistically speaking, I'm not sure for, for our context, but at least if we're the, the norm for Canadians, about half of us would consider this a very significant issue to experience a greater degree of friendship and a greater quality of friendship to experience a greater quality of life. So the natural question is, where do you turn? And I'm sure for some of us, the first place we're going to turn is the friends that we're choosing. You know, Mike read this verse last week from Proverbs chapter 18, where he says, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. And, you know, as the thinking goes, if, if we're going to consider how, first of all, to, to have good or better friends in our lives, you know, we're going to probably consider the friends in our lives and whether they're actually good. We're going to consider the friends that we're choosing. And the Bible in other places affirms the wisdom in that. In fact, a, a, a few, sorry, a few chapters earlier in Proverbs chapter 12, it says this, the righteous choose their friends carefully. There's some value in considering the people that you choose to be friends in your life and to invest that kind of time and energy and vulnerability journeying through life with. And so we're going to actually spend a week on the importance of choosing friends. But we're actually going to commit that week to week four in this series because when it comes to the scriptures and what God says through the Bible about what it most takes to experience a quality of life with rich, close friendships, it actually says certain things more pervasively and more predominantly than just what it takes to choose good friends. In fact, choosing good friends is not the foreground drumbeat of what the Bible would teach when it comes to experiencing a quality of life defined by good friendships. And so today, as kind of a first things first step after appreciating how much friendship actually matters, we're going to dive in to the most significant thing the Bible talks about, the thing it invests its greatest energy into explaining and encouraging people to live out in their lives. 
And so we're going to start, uh, not surprisingly, with the teachings of Jesus, who, if you've been around here at all, you know, uh, kind of boiled everything down to what we often refer to as the law of love, to love God and love other people. In John chapter 13, it's said this way. This is Jesus talking. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Just a great example of Jesus teaching that love for God translates in love for people. And he paints the picture of the way this love for people can express itself in a, in a one another kind of version of love. We see this described not just in the teachings of Jesus, but then by the New Testament writers after Jesus' life on earth who were explaining to their followers and to their churches what a life of following Jesus ultimately looks like. For example, in Romans chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul writes this, he says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. You'll see again how this love for God translates in a love for other people in this one another kind of a way. And it's in this one another dynamic of how a love for God translates in a love for people that I want to first camp out on this morning because the, the Bible refers to these one another dynamics many times. In fact, in the New Testament alone, the term one another is used somewhere around a hundred times. And I wanted us just to get a picture of how pervasively this love for God expressed in love for people that translates into this one another relational dynamic is actually described. And so we put a slide together just to give you kind of a fraction of this list of a hundred. We've already looked at Jesus love one another and the apostle Paul's be devoted to one another in love. But here are some other examples of one another's that I'd love for us to kind of whip through here. For example... The Bible says, live in harmony with one another. Pay the debt of love to one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. Agree with one another. Encourage one another. Serve one another humbly in love. Bear with one another. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Basically, sing to one another. Probably my favorite. Submit to one another. Have the same mindset with one another as Christ Jesus had. Forgive one another. Admonish one another. Build one another up. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Keep on loving one another. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against one another. Love one another deeply from the heart. And offer hospitality to one another. Just to name a bunch. And I hope that you get the sense that as the Bible again and again and again refers to this one another dynamic of expressing a love for God and people, what it's talking about is the dynamic of friendship, how close relationship works. And what I want us to notice in this laundry list of one another's in every case is to consider who these one another instructions, who these commandments and encouragements are written to. Ask yourself who these instructions or commandments or encouragements are intended for. Because all of these one another's that describe what great close friendship looks like, all of these one another's are not written about the kind of person we ought to consider selecting as a friend. They're actually written to people to describe the kind of attributes they're to bring to the relationships that they find themselves in. They're applied to the people 
entering into the relationships, not to people considering the others that they might get into relationship with. Second thing I want us to consider for a moment is the way that God desires to work in people and to work in relationships. You know, we often talk about the the way that God wants to work among people of faith as bearing fruit through their lives. In Galatians chapter 5 as an example, it says, the fruit of God's spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Gives you kind of a a picture of the way that God wants to work in people, the kind of attitudes of heart that he wants to develop. I once heard a, a, a Bible teacher describe the fruit of God's spirit in Galatians chapter 5 as the glue that holds friendships together. These are kind of the attitudes essential for holding friendship together. And again, I want us to consider the way in which the Bible describes God working in creating that glue that holds friendships together. Remember, we've said often around here that the big idea of the message of Christianity, what separates Christianity from every other world religion, is that when it comes to following Jesus, a life of following Jesus isn't fundamentally about what we do for God. It's about what God does for us and in us and through us, like described in Galatians chapter 5. So once again, I want us to notice that when it comes to God kind of developing and generating this glue that makes friendship work, it happens in the life of the friend themselves, not necessarily explained as a laundry list of conditions or requirements to screen or select prospective friends. These attitudes that God wants to develop that form the glue of relationships are things that God wants to do in us. So put these two ideas together and I think we can kind of grasp at the big idea of what what I hope we can camp out on this morning. When it comes to the attributes that make close friendship work, the Bible describes these in terms of attributes intended to be for the believer themselves. And when it comes to the attitudes that form the glue that hold friendships together, the Bible intends those to be the activity of God in believers themselves. That's the picture of how friendship is ultimately or primarily fostered when it comes to the way that the Bible speaks to how friendship happens. It's through attributes developed and committed to by believers themselves and attitudes developed or grown in believers themselves. The whole process, I hope we can appreciate, starts with the believer, not with the friends that they're supposed to select. Bottom line, in practical terms today, once we're appreciating that friendship matters and appreciating how much friendship matters, if we're wondering, what do I do then? How do I experience those kinds of close friends? If you want to experience close friendships, the Bible would say, first things first, start with you. Start with the attributes that are required to experience great friendship and start living them out or live them out to a greater degree and start with the fruit of the spirit, the glue that holds great friendship together and allowing God to do that work In you. The foreground drumbeat, here's the point the foreground drumbeat 
that the Bible provides when it comes to experiencing great friendships is not the kind of person we ought to consider being friends with us. It's the kind of friend we ought to consider we are to others. Bottom line, gang, is that the Bible affirms that old saying that says, if you want a friend, first things first, you've got to be a friend. If you want a friend, you've got to be a friend. The highlight responsibility when it comes to experiencing great friendship is fundamentally on us. And gang, I think that this is a really critical conversation for us to have in an environment like this. Not even just in a, in a subject or, or during a series on friendship. Um, this is an important conversation for us to have just in general. Because I think when it comes to a life of faith and when it comes to our relationships, so often it is so easy to shirk that personal responsibility. You, know, you think about in our world, how many times a, a kid gets cut from a team and people blame the coach. You know, you get bad grades and immediately it's the teacher's fault. You know, uh, you're not doing well at work. You wonder what the boss's problem is, why they're not, why they're not pleased with your performance. And that happens all the time. We deflect and we kind of redirect the, the, the problem on something or somebody else. Same thing's true, if not more true, when it comes to close relationships, you know, uh, there might not be many of us uh, across our locations today that are counselors or pastors. But if you just imagine yourself being one for a moment, you know, imagine how many people come into pastoral offices or counseling offices struggling in, you know, for example, in their marriage and sit down with the pastor or counselor and say, hey, I just need to talk to you today about how bad of a spouse I'm being. Do you know how often that happens? That, ha how, that happens about as often as the Leafs have won the cup in the last 50 years. Like almost never. When people sit down in those kinds of offices, they say, I need to talk about my marriage because my spouse is doing such and such. Or I'm struggling with my spouse in this way. It's always, gang, always about the other person because that's our tendency. Our tendency is to kind of shirk or deflect or redirect the responsibility for the condition of our relationships instead of own it ourselves. And the same thing's true when I consider my friendships. You know, Mike mentioned how valuable this series would be in his life. Same thing's true for me, only when I think about the condition of my friendships and the number of them and the nature of them. You know, so often the very first thing that I'll point to when people talk to me about my friends is how hard it is to cultivate friendships because of what I do for a living. Because of my job, my, my role as a pastor. You know, if you think about it in the context of friendships within the church, I'm sure you can understand that there's some complexity there, always wearing the pastor hat and you know, always having that spiritual parental dynamic. And worse, sometimes we've got the employer hat at play or the employee hat in some cases. And there's always a bit of a weird dynamic with friendships in the church. Well, then think about what it's like to have friendships, in my case, outside the church. If you ever want to make a person feel awkward or tense up right away, tell them you're a pastor for a living and you'll see, oh, you know, I'm a pastor. <laughs> you know, right away they get kind of anxious and uncomfortable. And there's no doubt that what I do for a living creates some awkwardness or some complexity and challenge to my relational life. But I'll tell you, if I consider what the scriptures say and what the foreground drumbeat is on where the responsibility for the condition of friendships ultimately or primarily lies, 
I have got to face the fact that the quality and quantity of my friendships rests not on what I do for a living, not on other people that I choose to be friends with, but ultimately on me. I've got to allow the light of God's truth to shine on me and ask myself how I need to change if I'm going to experience a greater number and a greater degree of quality friendships in my life. Now saying that, there might be some of us who are still kind of wiggly and squirmy because we think about some of the relationships in our lives and there's so much going on in the other person. You know, I, I understand that and, and I just want us to know this morning, that's why we're having a fourth week in the series. Because as we looked at some Proverbs earlier, the Bible does speak to the dynamic of selecting a certain kind of friend. And we're going to spend a morning considering that because, you know, in any relationship of reciprocity, in any dynamic of mutuality, for sure there is a reality where it takes two to tangle, not just one. It takes two. You know, more to that, and, and for some of us who really struggle in some of our relationships, we've got to appreciate that there is such a thing as an abusive person. There's such a thing as a self-absorbed person. There's such a thing as an insensitive, uncaring person. There's such a thing as an unfaithful person. And it is possible, unfortunately, to be fundamentally stuck or stifled in a relational dynamic because of the other person. That's not necessarily blaming if, in fact, it's true. And for some of us, we're in those dynamics and stuck. And so it's really hard to hear a message where the primary responsibility is on us. I just want you to know if that's you today, that I know that, I understand that, and appreciate that sometimes that's real. But when you consider what the scriptures teach, especially given what we're trying to focus on today, appreciate that even in those cases, the Bible, while conceding that that can happen, still doesn't let us take the gas pedal off, putting the responsibility and onus primarily on ourselves for the quality of relationships that we're experiencing. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 12. It says there, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do you notice the disclaimers there? If it is possible, as far as it depends on you. Conceding that sometimes it's just not possible. And sometimes it's beyond your control. But even in those cases, the Bible says, to focus on you and what you bring to the table and to live out your responsibility to live at peace and to cultivate the best relational dynamics you can. Even in those cases, the responsibility is on us to do our part to live out our end of the relational bargain, to live out those attributes, to live out those attitudes that make great relationship work. And so today, even if we find ourselves in that place where we're really struggling with what the other person in a close relationship is bringing or not bringing to us, um, I would hope that we would allow the light of truth to shine on us today and appreciate the way that the foreground downbeat message of the Bible when it comes to friendship is on the responsibility people bear themselves for the condition of and quality of their friendships. Remember what uh, author and psychologist Henry Cloud once said about the difference between wise and foolish people. 
wise people, when the light of truth is shone on them, they allow it to shine on them and consider how they need to change. Foolish people, when the light of truth is shone on them, they consider how they can redirect the light so they don't have to change. Today, gang, we're being challenged with the personal responsibility of what we bring to the friendships around us. Allow the light of truth to shine on you, even for a moment, even for this stage in the series on Friendship Matters. So to do that, I think, practically speaking, we've just got to ask one question. You know, what are we bringing to the table and what else do we need to bring to the table when it comes to the close friendships around us? At a very practical level, if you wanted to consider some homework exercises today, some, some takeaways that you can personally reflect on or talk about with your friends or your roommates or your coworkers or classmates or your life group, um, I, I would suggest maybe a couple things. First of all, um, you can go back and uh, if you didn't make notes or take a picture of the, the screen, uh, you can go back on the video and just take a screenshot of those 23 plus 2, those 25 or so one another attributes. You know, ask yourself, which of those 25 would God wo most want me to grow in this year when I consider the friends around me? Or you could take a screenshot of Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Consider those nine features of the fruit of the Spirit, those nine attitudes that God wants to grow in us that are the glue that makes friendship work and consider which of those nine God would most want to grow in you this year. You know, allow the light of truth to shine on your life and consider which attribute and or which attitude God might most want to see you grow in this year for the sake of your friendships. If it helps to get even more practical, I'll suggest a, a, another possibility while we're on the subject of lists. Um, Doctors Les and Leslie Parrott have written a number of relational books, marriage, friendship, things like that. And uh, they run a, a Center for Relational Development out of Seattle Pacific University. And uh, in their research, they've created a top 10 list of what makes good friendship work. And I'll share this list in addition to the attributes and the attitudes just because it, it takes it to another level of practicality. And so you'll notice on the screen... You know, this top 10 list, again, take a screenshot or, or consider this list for yourself. Because they would say a good friend, number one, makes time. Number two, keeps a secret. Number three, cares deeply. Number four, provides space. Number five, speaks the truth. Number six, forgives faults. Number seven, remains faithful. Number eight, laughs easily. Number nine, celebrates your success. And number 10, connects strongly another practical kind of assessment that we can use today to consider what it is that we're bringing, what it is that we can bring to a greater degree to experience the kind of friendships that are going to translate into the quality of life, of richness and satisfaction where we can be fulfilled and thrive. Gang, as we wrap up today, we want to give you another kind of practical picture of what that looks like in the context of our community. And so we've got another video story of friendship that we want to share with you. Uh, today is the story of Scotty and Dave. And uh, as you're listening to their story, thinking, you know, could I do that? Hey, I could live like that. Maybe I can experience that in my life to a greater degree. I want you to pay particular attention to how these two guys think about or talk about how they enter into and approach friendship. 
Because in neither of these cases is the person fundamentally living primarily focused on the expectation of the other and what they're bringing or delivering or not delivering to them. They're living out the primary biblical vision of what they can bring to the other in allowing that love for God and people to translate into the attributes of one another friendship and allow God to change them and grow in them the attitudes that hold relationship together. So as you hear their story and are encouraged by it, reflect on the ways in which God might want to grow that in you to a greater degree as well. Because when it comes to the foreground downbeat of what the Bible primarily says, when it comes to experiencing great friendships, the saying's true. If you want to have a friend, you've got to be a friend. Check out their story.